How do you prepare for Christmas every year? Do you have certain traditions that you do? Are there certain routines that you follow? And then how long does it take you to prepare? You're one of these people that kind of gets to December 23rd, and you think, oh, I should probably put a tree up. I wonder if there's any decorations I can, I can find and, and put around. You're one of these people that, that goes to Superstore on the 24th, thinking, I should probably pick up some groceries. You know, each year I notice there's at least a few people that start putting up Christmas lights about, you know, mid-November. You think, okay, you're, you're a keener right there. You know, you're, you're, you've got the Christmas spirit. And then there are other people who uh, maybe, maybe, maybe it's even us, that start to think about Christmas Eve, I should probably stop looking for presents for people. And so they, you know, they might stop at a gas station. You wonder, oh, thank you for this Snickers bar? Like, uh, thank you for this, this Amazon gift card? I, now, the fact that you printed it, I know that you didn't even wait for it to be delivered. You got to midnight on Christmas Eve and had to print it. Well, when we read the scriptures, when we read the Bible, it's clear that the first Christmas was being prepared for for a very long time. It didn't just come about on a whim. It, it didn't just happen. No, God carefully and thoughtfully prepared for it for a long time. You look all throughout the Old Testament and you see these prophecies build up, up and up as you read more and more. And they get more and more specific as you read on. God promises Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, Genesis 12, 1500 to 2000 BC. And he promises the same thing to Abraham's son, Isaac, and then to Isaac's son, Jacob. He promises that he will raise up another prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. He promises that this person will come from the line of King David, and his rule will be forever, 2 Samuel 7, 1000 BC. He promises that this ruler, king, prophet, Messiah will be born in a small town called Bethlehem, Micah 5, 700 BC. And then we see as we enter the New Testament, he sends his angel, his messenger, Gabriel, to visit, to announce the coming of this king, his son, Jesus. But finally, last of all, to prepare for this first Christmas, we see that God brought about the birth of another baby, a, a pre-Christmas birth. So let's le- read from Luke chapter 1, verse 57 and onwards together. And if you're able to, please stand with me as we recognize that this is God's word that we're reading this morning. Starting in Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No. He shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. 
And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. The idea is an animal horn, not like a trumpet horn, an animal horn to symbolize power and authority. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to us, to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let me pray. Lord, please open our hearts and our minds this morning. Help us to understand what you're saying in this passage, what you mean by it, and then what we should do in response, what we should believe, what we should think, what we should do in response. Help us to do that this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and take a seat. It's only in the Gospel of Luke that we find the birth of John written down. Actually, it's only in Matthew and Luke, for that matter, that we read about the birth of Jesus. Mark and John's Gospels just jump right into Jesus' adult ministry. Although in all the Gospels, we meet this enigmatic figure, John the Baptist. We read about this John the Baptist. And the defining characteristic described throughout all four of the Gospels is that John's life and ministry is one of preparing the way for Jesus. That was his entire purpose in life. That was his entire mission in life. That was why he was born. That was why he lived. The gospel writers make this clear when they directly quote from the prophet Isaiah. John is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. 700 years previously, Isaiah had prophesied what John's life would be like, distinguished by preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. But isn't it wonderful that not only in his ministry would he prepare the way for Jesus, but also in his birth he was preparing the way for the one greater than him. 
John was born just six months before Jesus was. If you read all of Luke chapter one, where our reading is today, you'll see that Mary, already pregnant with Jesus, was most likely at John's birth. She had been visiting her relative, Elizabeth, John's mom. John's birth is this pre-game warm-up to the greater birth that's coming next, to the greater birth that's coming in the next chapter, if you read on. Well, there are many things that this passage shows us. There are deep riches in it. But as we prepare for Christmas, I want to draw eyes to three things in particular that stand out. The first is that God is merciful. When our son Everett was born, it took us quite a long time to decide on, on a name. Some people kind of enter marriage and they have their list of you know, 12 children's names already picked out. Well, I know the first one's gonna be called so-and-so. And onwards. That wasn't the, the case for us. In fact, it took us till about six months through the pregnancy of going through baby name lists until we came across Everett. And we both kind of said, hey, I, I like the sound of that. That's, that was our reason for choosing it. We liked the sound of it. But, but there are a variety of reasons why people choose to name their child a particular name. Sometimes it's just because they like the name, like we did. Oftentimes it's the name of someone that the parent respects and admires. Uh, maybe it's someone that did something great throughout history. Uh, sometimes it's the meaning of the name. Uh, for instance, we see this a lot in the Bible. Uh, for instance, with Jacob's children in Genesis chapter 29 and 30, it says, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, and you see a footnote saying, Reuben means see. His name will be Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction. Uh, Leah called her first son Reuben to remind her that the Lord has seen me. And it goes on, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And, and Simeon means heard. So, so God has seen her, God has heard her. And her, her children's names remind her that God sees and hears her. You know, actually in, in preparation for this morning, I actually looked up a few of the meanings of our names in, in this room. Awesome. First of all, <laughs> the one that was, I, I don't know what I expected, but I looked up Scott. Scott, uh, our dear friend who did the announcements this morning, simply means um, someone who's Scottish, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> so, I <laughs> don't quite know what I was expecting. It was that extra T. I was like, no, that adds a whole new length of meaning to it. So I looked up Derwin. Derwin means dear friend. Bill comes from, from William, resolute protector. Jenna, my wife, means the fair one. It's quite nice. Uh, Everett, our son, comes from the old English Eorfahard, which sometimes I, I call him I don't actually call him if I'm mad at him. That one's kind of saved for if, if I'm pleased with him. You know, little Eorfahad. <laughs> I think it's Anglo-Saxon, Old English. That means to be brave as a wild boar. Yeah, it's a pr pretty good name. 
I, I don't know if we actually knew that when we, when we named him it, but it's great. He's, he, he is built like a bit of a tank, actually. <laughs> and then there's my name, Simon, which in Hebrew means he who hears, to hear. Or, or in Greek means snub-nosed. <laughs> and I'm being serious. And, and a little side note is, you know those like bookmarks or coasters or, or pens you can get? that have you know, your name on them. Maybe if you go somewhere, you're a tourist, you go into a, a gift shop, they'll have this, this racks of just names and, and coasters or all the rest of it. I, you know, my dear mother bought me some of these as I was growing up, and, uh, and some of them did have this, this Greek meaning on it. So like, I did get, you know, my brother would get his robber, I, I can't remember what that means, but it's something much more positive. And then I would get the same thing, oh, snub nose, thanks, mom. <laughs> but, uh, some manufacturers, fortunately, just kind of decided to skip on the Greek meaning. <laughs> so meaning is one reason why someone might be given a particular name. Another reason is that it's a family name. Everett's middle name is Arthur, uh, the name of my great-grandfather and great-uncle. It's a family name. And this is another reason we see children named in Scripture. Look at verse 59 with me, and you'll see that it says, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. This was the typical practice at the time. A child would be named after their father or their grandfather. That's why it says, and the neighbors and relatives, they all wondered, or in other translations it might say, uh, they were surprised or they were astonished when Elizabeth and Zechariah call him John. So why did they call him John, exactly? Well, first, because they were told to. Just earlier in the chapter, we read that Zechariah is visited by an angel who says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. By calling him John, they were being obedient to God, what God had commanded them to do, but also this highlights how special John was going to be. If you read in the passage, it says, they were astonished, they all wondered when his name was called John, and later it says they, they stored, them up, stored this up in their hearts. What then will this child be? This was surprising. So it highlights how special this child would be, that he was given a name by God. But also the name John has such an appropriate meaning. It means the Lord is gracious, or the Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful. And we see this word mercy come up several times in this passage. Read in verse 57. God is merciful to Elizabeth. Verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. God is so personal and merciful that he even cares about bringing joy to an elderly, childless couple in the remote area in the Middle East. But also God is merciful to his people, as we see in verse 72 and then 76 to 78. 
and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Uh, John's life was a testimony to the tender mercy of God. In his very birth, this demonstrated God's tender mercy towards Elizabeth and Zechariah. But also as he prepared the way for the Lord and pointed people toward God's tender mercy. And this theme of God's mercy is one that flows throughout the whole of Scripture. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, God is rich in mercy. He's rich in mercy. Even the whole story of the Bible uh, that humankind rebelled against, sinned against God, rejected him, and tore away from relationship with him. But that in response, Jesus came to take away our sin, our guilt, our shame, that we might have the chance to be made right with God again. The thread of God's mercy and grace runs through the entire length of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Do you believe in God's mercy this morning? Can you look at your life and see how God has been merciful to you? Do you have a heart, an attitude that is willing to believe in and be able to see God's mercies day by day? Lamentations 3 says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Every morning as you wake up, as your eyes open, God's mercies are new. Great is your faithfulness. It finishes. So first, God is merciful. That much is true. But how exactly is he merciful to us? Specifically, how does he show his mercy? If you're unfamiliar with this story that we're reading this morning, this is really exploring the tail end of the story for Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, only in Luke chapter 1. And we read that they're an elderly couple, They're Israelites from the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're childless. They've been childless their entire lives. And the possibility for having children has quite clearly passed at this time. But suddenly in his old age, Zechariah is visited by an angel from God and told that his wife will in fact give birth to a son. The miraculous will happen. But because he doesn't believe the angel at first, then the angel responds, okay, well, you're not going to be able to speak until this prophecy is fulfilled, until Elizabeth gives birth to your son. (coughs) Pause for a moment and think about this. My wife and I were blessed to conceive over, after only three months of marriage, Many people have to wait much, much longer than that. 
But in this day and age, it's, it's difficult for us to imagine how important children were to ancient cultures. There, there are so many aspects at play. Of course, the joy of having a child, but also the, the societal importance of carrying on the family line. Uh, and then the physical importance of having children to care for you in your old age when you're no longer able to. Zechariah and Elizabeth have been waiting for this baby every day for their long lives. And Zechariah has been mute for nine months. And then his son is finally born and he's finally able to speak. And this is what he says. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now the strange thing is, Zechariah is not talking about his son. He isn't from the line of David, which is the the tribe of Judah. He's from the priestly line, the tribe of Levi. So after being childless his entire life with no hope of children anymore and then nine months of being unable to speak, finally in his old age he miraculously has a son. Finally he's able to speak again and he doesn't say anything about his son until two-thirds of the way through his prophecy. Clearly the first thing he wants to say is immensely important if he's willing to pass over the birth of his son for it. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is the center of Zechariah's benedictus, as it's often called, his blessing. God has visited his people. God has shown his mercy by visiting humanity. Matthew's gospel lays it out even clearer for us as he quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has visited us in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the great act of mercy that Zechariah wants us to see. And then he expands on this visitation and the role of his son, John. Verse 76, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. I love that phrasing, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So why has God visited us? So that we might have knowledge of salvation, the forgiveness of sins. That was the purpose of his visitation. God has visited us to save us, to forgive us. All of humanity has dwelt in darkness and the shadow of death, and God, through his son Jesus, has brought a light 
into the darkness and made a way for us to be forgiven. This was the great and the intentional purpose of Jesus' coming. Whether or not we recognize it, we need to be saved from our sinfulness, from our own darkness. And Jesus' life, death, and resurrection make this possible. Even the very circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth tell us something about him. He wasn't born in a palace, but in a humble dwelling place. He wasn't placed in a crib, but in a feeding trough, a manger. He wasn't born to a king and a queen, but to a poor family. He wasn't born in a a modern city filled with lights, but in a small village in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. And surely, if he was willing to do all of that, it shows he is willing to dwell in our poor, darkened hearts. And so thirdly, here's the big idea that weaves all of this together in this passage. God keeps his promises. Zechariah's prayer is filled with quotations and allusions from the Old Testament. There's too many to go through them all. But he's going through the Old Testament remembering what God has promised and then praising him for fulfilling his promises. With the birth of Jesus, he's fulfilling his promise to Abraham. Over a thousand years before that he would bless all nations through his offspring. He's fulfilling his promise to David that one of his descendants would rule forever. He's fulfilling his promise to his people that he would visit them. He's fulfilling his promise in John that he would send a messenger before him to prepare his ways. God keeps his promises. Every person who lives has and will fail at some time or another. Sometimes it's our own fault. Our own sinfulness, foolishness, selfishness. Other times it's external circumstances. We're taken by surprise. We don't have the power to prevent things from happening or even the power to fix them once they go wrong. However, God is never taken by surprise. He's never powerless. He's never out of control. Nothing will stop him, has stopped him, will stop him from fulfilling his promises. Just as nothing did stop him fulfilling his promise to visit his people. And he promises us great things. He promises that if we confess Jesus is Lord and believe he rose from the dead, we will be saved, Romans 10. He promises that if we confess our sins, he will forgive us and purify us, 1 John 1. He promises to give us wisdom if we ask, James 1. He promises to provide a way out of temptation, 1 Corinthians 10. He promises to never leave us, or forsake us. He will never leave you, nor forsake you. Hebrews 13. He promises to finish the good work that he has begun in us. Philippians 1. He promises to come back, to return, to bring an end to all pain and suffering. And he will keep his promises. So as we draw to a close this morning,
Let me ask you, how are you going to prepare for Christmas? Because how we prepare for Christmas affects how we will celebrate Christmas. At this time of the year, more than any, things don't just come together. Will you manage to keep the visitation of God to humanity at its rightful place, at the center of everything, and not just tacked on as, and as, a, as an afterthought? Or will we be too easily distracted by lesser things? Let me leave you with, with three suggestions for this Christmas. First is let us remember. Remember that God keeps his promises. Remember the mercies of God. I love how Zechariah finishes his prophecy. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The sunrise can come into your life. God can guide you into peace. The sun can shine into those dusty, cobwebbed corners of your soul that have been hidden for so long. Isn't it comforting to know in one of the most busiest, most stressful seasons of the year, God is merciful. God is merciful in your financial stress. God is merciful as you try to navigate difficult family situations throughout this season. He is merciful in your weaknesses. And he is waiting for you to call out to him. Secondly, may we prepare by praising God. Let us praise God because he is merciful, because he keeps his promises, because he has visited his people, because he has visited us. Just as Zechariah praised, blessed God, may we do the same. And thirdly, in order to remember and praise, let us make room. Otherwise, these will be pushed out so easily. We know how these busy holidays are and how easily we can come consumed by lesser things. So specifically, how will you make room to remember, to praise? How will you make room for Jesus this Christmas? So over the next two days as you prepare for Christmas and over the entire coming year, remember God keeps his promises. He is merciful. He is forgiving. And he has shown this supremely so by visiting us in the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord, you know all things. And so you don't need us to tell you that this is one of the most busy and stressful times of the year for many people. And so we thank you for your mercy, Lord. We thank you that we don't enter Christmas with, with a list of rules and, uh, and commands, things that you command from us, things that you say that we need to do. Instead, you, you come 
giving us your very presence. You come to give, Lord. You came to give. But we thank you for this. We ask that your light would shine through this season. We ask that you would fill darkened hearts, darkened lives with your light, that people would experience forgiveness. We thank you that the sunrise from on high has visited us. Lord, I think of a sunrise in the morning and, and the darkness that precedes it and how there's, there's no hint that there will be a, a new day coming and then slowly the, the sky changes and light dawns. And we thank you that your light has dawned. You have visited. This is something you have done that we can look to. And so we turn to you this season. We give glory to you. We bless you. With Zechariah, we say, blessed be you, Lord God of Israel, for you have visited and redeemed your people. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.